Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. If you're new to our church, my name is Dave, and I have the privilege of serving as lead pastor here. And uh, I've been here, this is my 23rd year at Harvest. And I, I got to tell you, when you get to be in one place for that long, you get to see a lot. Um, if you've ever sat at an intersection or outside a cafe for like a couple hours and just watched the world go by, it's a very interesting view when you don't move and everything else moves around you. And so uh, it's been a real joy for me to watch lives grow. Whenever we see these rites of passage as one group graduates and moves on to another, it always stirs my heart. I, I realize how fast time is flowing. Uh, a few weeks ago, we started a new sermon series on the Gospel of John. And I truly love the Gospel of John. There are a lot of important themes, and they repeat themselves throughout John's Gospel. And so if you're looking for new content every single week, it might be a little challenging, because John seems to want to reinforce the same basic truths of our faith over and over so that we don't miss them. And so I will try to present them to you in ways that are fresh as possible, but I want to ask you to really hang in there during this series and give the Gospel of John your fullest attention. This morning, I want to look at a long passage of Scripture. We're not even going to read the whole thing. I'm going to jump through different verses out of that. But the title of the message is Bearing Witness. Bearing Witness. And I want to ask you to pause and think about the person or people who were most instrumental in leading you to Jesus. I want you to pause for a second and just think about that person or those people who were most instrumental in helping you meet or find your way to Jesus. Now, they may not be the person who sat there with you the day you made a decision to put your trust in Jesus. They may not have been the one who led you through the prayer, but without that person, it may have been much, much longer of a search for you because it's been my experience that at least among the people I've met and known, nearly no one finds their way to Jesus unassisted, just on their own. I've met a person or two who had not been told about Jesus by anyone else and just found a Bible in their hotel room and started reading and said, what is this? And said, oh, I'm going to give my life to this. I, I don't know if those stories are true, but I've, I've met very few people who find their way to Jesus all by themselves. The vast majority of people I've met have been helped along that journey by other people who made Jesus <coughs> known and real to them. In verses 6 to 8, John the Apostle says about John the Baptist these things. God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness to tell about the light. That word witness, I actually dreaded it when I was in youth group myself, because my youth pastor talked about it every other week, it seemed like. Just, are you witnessing? Are you wit-? And it just sounded to me like, oh, man, I have, I'm just duty-bound, and I have to tell others. And I, I just felt like, okay, I, what does that mean to witness? Am I supposed to just, was it like um, when I was selling newspaper subscriptions, everyone I met, I'm trying to get them to sign up for something? What does it practically mean to witness? Because I got the message loud and clear that this is important. As a follower of Jesus, I'm supposed to do this. But my youth pastor who kept telling me to do it wasn't really clear what exactly that meant. And so this morning, I want to explore with you what that meant. I think this is a profound statement. That though Jesus was God himself in the form of a man, God who was man, and a man who was God, Nonetheless, 
God sent a man to announce him, to talk about him, to lead others to him. In other words, it has always been the case that the witness and the testimony of one person is really important in another person learning about and finding their way towards Jesus. Now, that witness by itself is not enough. Jesus later teaches us that no one can come to God unless God himself draws them. So we don't want to separate those two things. It's absolutely important that while we're talking to someone about Jesus, Jesus is talking to that same person about himself. And in the unseen supernatural world and in the seen world, there is an agreement, Jesus is Savior. And people are hearing it and feeling it in the depths of their spirit. What I love about John's calling is that it's not just his calling alone. John played a very unique role in history, and I don't want to take that away from him. He was, we're not John the Baptist. He played a very particular role in the unfolding story of God and his saving plan for humanity. But the the New Testament is filled with verses like this, like Mark 16, 15, that tell us we are bound up in the same calling that was given to John. That John was called to be a witness to Jesus, and God then calls us to bear the same witness. He says to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. I actually like Mark's version of it even better than Matthew's because he doesn't just say to all the nations, but he's saying to all creation. It it gives me a bigger picture of the breadth and the scope of God's love for, for his creation, for his desire to see it, the whole of creation be redeemed. Not just people, but societies, the planet itself, relationships, truths, ideas. He wants to see everything he has made redeemed by his saving work. And so he says, go and share the gospel with all of creation. John wasn't the only one called to bear witness. So this morning, I want to explore with you, out of the story of John the Baptist that John the Apostle tells, some of the practical aspects of what it means to bear witness. Now, you can, in fact, in seminary, my major was missions and evangelism. So I spent two and a half years pretty much nonstop studying the topic of sharing faith and sharing the gospel. You can stretch this topic out to a lot of hours. Okay, we're not going to do that this morning. So if I can't possibly address the whole topic, but I'm going to hit certain things that I think are really important for you to hear, because as God says to all of us, it's our privilege and our responsibility to give witness to Jesus in the lives of other people. It's really important we understand what that actually means when we get down to it and share life and share words with other people. The first thing I want to look at is that witnesses show that God is, in fact, knowable. Witnesses show us that God is knowable. And that may seem like a dull kind of thing, but it's actually not as simple as it sounds. You you know, it was a well-established assumption in Judaism, the, the religion of the Jews, that you can't see or know God. That God is so high above us, so beyond what we can comprehend, that for a human being to say they truly know God is nonsense, that you can see God is nonsense, because he is beyond us by orders of magnitude. And in fact, what we see see among the Muslims is the same thing. Their concept of God is that ultimate transcendence. You cannot have a personal relationship with God because he is so far beyond and above us. In fact, The Jews believed that God was so transcendent, so holy, that his name could not even be spoken by human human tongues. And so when they wrote the name of God, you may have once in a while seen in your Bible the the word Lord is in all capitals. That designates the four-letter, what they call the tetragrammaton in Hebrew, the four letters that designated God's personal name. Not God the title, but his personal name, just like my title is pastor, but my personal name is Dave. Okay? And when God has a personal name, it's designated by four consonants. And in Hebrew, there's markings for indicating vowels, but with just the name of God, none of the vowels were provided. It was their way of saying, we don't even want you to try pronouncing the name because we're not worthy of speaking the name. That's how great, how holy, how other God is from us. 
Now, now, I think God did something about that huge buffer, but we shouldn't lose the point that too often our view of God in our desire to be close to him brings him too low. I think one of the reasons that the gospel is good news is that God is greater than we might imagine. And the fact that he wants to know us and to be known by us, it's, a, it's, a, it's good news only if you realize who he really is. What if I told you, I met a guy named Joe and he wants to meet you? I'm like, all right, whatever. Who's Joe? I don't care about Joe. I don't know Joe. It's not good news unless you realize, what if I said, hey, I, I met, uh, I don't know, <laughs> Lady Gaga yesterday and she wants to meet you. I met Barack Obama yesterday. He wants to meet you. If it's someone who is amazing, you might go, oh, well, that's interesting. And I, the Jews believe that it's impossible for us to know and see God in anything like the traditional sense that we know and see one another. Moses, in the early part of his ministry, asked God to reveal himself. See, it was the practice when they were just out, out of um, Egypt that there was a special tent set up in the middle of the camp, and they called it the Tent of Meeting. And Moses would go into the tent with his assistant Joshua, and the two of them would go in, and clearly something was going on because this giant light was shining down, and smoke and thunder and rumbling was coming out of the, You know, like when, when there's like a VIP room, and you're not allowed in, you're like, I wonder what goes on in there, and you're just so curious there's this tent where Moses and Joshua met with God, and no one else was permitted inside. And in that tent, God, it says, talked to Moses the way a friend would talk to a friend face to face. So there's some sense in which Moses enjoyed a level of access and intimacy with God that no other human being was allowed. But then later, what's weird about it is that Moses says these words to God. Now, show me your glory. You know... <laughs> Do you know why we say, oh, he was out there in all his glory when a person's naked? Do you ever hear that term? Who is just running around in all his glory? This idea of glory is unmasked, unveiled, raw exposure, the fullness of what a person is. That's why we, that's why we speak about someone running about in all their glory. And if you think about it, that idea is not actually so far from the truth of what Moses is asking. I've seen you with your clothes on. I want to see everything. Now, don't get the wrong idea. He's not saying he wants to see God naked. What he's saying is, I don't want you to hold back from me. And that's part of the reason that we're drawn to this idea of nakedness is it's seeing what no one else is allowed to see. It's seeing the full story without any covering, without any veil. We long to know and to be known at that level. We want that. And with God, it's no different. I've been there before where I've known and been around God for so long, but sometimes he just doesn't feel like really fully there with me. I want more than what I have. I want more than what I'm getting at church. I want more than what I'm getting out of my devotions. Sometimes I want to say the same words that Moses said to God. Show me your glory. I don't know if I can keep going on the basis of what I'm seeing. I want more. I need to see more. I need to experience more. So he asked God, and God said, "Um, all right, (laughs) I'm going to do it. But he said, listen, I cannot show you everything because it will kill you. It'll be too much for you. I will cause all my, and this is an interesting word, all my goodness. Because that's at the essence of what God is. What he radiates is goodness. And he says, I'm going to cause all of it to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my Lord. In other words, I'm going to actually tell you, Moses, how to pronounce my name. Right? What if every time you saw my name, you saw DVD, which are the consonants in my first name, David, and you had no idea what the vowels were, and you kept going, Dovid, Duvad. You had no idea how to pronounce it. I'm like, all right, listen, come here. I'm going to tell you. Don't tell anyone else. Here's how you say it. David. You'd be walking around like, uh-huh, I know how to say it. But that's what he said. Is, I'm going to show you everything, and then I'm going to let you hear how to say my name. Because it's not that God did not want to be known, but he's saying, I can't fully reveal myself because it will blow your circuits. But then he says in verse 20, but you cannot see my face for no one can see me and live. 
And so what he had Moses do is he hid him in the, what I call the, the crack in a mountain. You know, just basically shove him and go, okay, I got to protect you from what you just asked for. So he hides him in the big crack inside of a mountain and says, I'm going to pass by you, but you can't look fully on me. When I fully turn my face to you, you got to look away and just see the glow. Because you might die if you see the whole thing. So that's the picture in which Jesus enters the world, is that God is totally above us, beyond us, unknowable, inaccessible, at the level our hearts want. We want to know him, but we can't really know him in quite the way our hearts yearn for. And then at the end of the prologue of of John, the opening section of his, his gospel, he says these words, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, Jesus, who is himself God as is, and is in closest relationship with the Father, he has made him known. You know, we read verses like that in the New Testament and they kind of bounce right off of us, but think about how profound that is for a Jew to hear. Because from the time of Moses, it had been the same story. You want to know God, but you can't actually handle it. You can't really know God. And what John says is everything has changed now because God has come to us in a form that will not kill us to see and behold. He could not show us his full glory before in the way that we wanted, but now in Jesus, he has held nothing back. Jesus is the fullness of God. But we can actually wrap not just our minds around him, you can actually wrap your arms around him. He has come to us as a man. And in the person of Jesus Christ, we can actually come to know God. Apart from that intimate, personal, tangible manifestation, that that revelation of God, he's saying, here's what I am. He could describe himself. He could set up his rules for us so that we understand how he wants the world to operate. And until then, we could know a lot about God, but it was not possible to actually know God at the level and at the depth we yearned for. Do you see that? And it wasn't until God showed us the fullness of his glory in Jesus Christ that it became possible for us to know him. So one of the things about bearing witness is it begins not with persuading someone else about God. It begins with our fully knowing God and saying, before I tell you to follow this God, I'm going to actually know and follow this God so that when I speak of him, you understand in what I say to you that this is a God I know. The most compelling witnesses are not the most persuasive or eloquent or educated people. They're the ones when they speak about him, you go, oh man, when you talk about him, he sounds really real. He f- it feels like you're talking about someone you actually know. That's very compelling. Let me give you an illustration. I, I scoured the internet, I found one picture of this. There might be more. This, how many of you recognize where this is? Anybody? Just out of curiosity. This is inside of a building called the Armory at the University of Illinois. It's where ROTC drills in the morning. And in the old days before computers and the internet, this is where we went to register for classes. And I got to tell you, put, direct your eyes not to the foreground, but to the background. See that massive humanity? That chaos was how we registered for classes before computers. As a freshman, not knowing anything, I walked into this giant warehouse, this field house, and it was just eye to eye, from, from, from horizon to horizon, as far as I could see, it's just a wall of people, and it just looked like total chaos. And they said, all right, here's a card, go and pick your classes. I'm like, what does that mean? I was so lost. So, How many of you re- went to University of Illinois in that era? Raise your hand. Do you remember? Do you remember the craziness of the armory? Thank God for computers. I, you kids don't know how lucky you are. And so I remember as a freshman going, okay, I have no idea. And they said, and you got to hurry because most of the good, good times, like unless you want all 8 o'clock classes, you got to find your way to the right classes and the right lines at the right time or all the noon sessions will be closed. So I'm like, that really stinks. I'm going to have nothing but 8 a.m. classes. And I'm running around, and I didn't know even know where to start. And then I saw this really long line, and the youngest people seemed to be queued up in front of that line. So I'm like, 
Is this? And I was so uncertain, and it was such a long line. I'm like, the longer I waited, the longer I might be. And I finally looked around, there's this kid right in front of me. And I go, why do you look so calm? He goes, don't worry about it. This is the right line. This is where we start. This is another freshman. He could have been a bigger idiot than I was. I have no idea. But it's weird how his absolute confidence bled over into my uncertainty. I was, it was amazing. He just looked at me. He just, I go, dude, relax. We're in the right line. This is where the freshmen start. I, I, I don't know why I believed him, but when he said it, I was like, all right. Now, I'm not saying that he made it right just by being confident in it. At the end, the truth of what he was claiming had to be tested. Praise God, he was right. But what I'm saying to you is one of the things that he did for me was in the midst of my internal chaos, his certainty bled over into my uncertainty. I was thankful just to find someone who wasn't as completely anxious about it as I was. That has, that has limited value, you understand? But it is of some value. I was the last person in my family to come to Jesus. Some of you are like, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> well, it's true. My younger brother and my parents came to Jesus before I did. And man, when they came to Jesus, they really came to Jesus. It wasn't just a religious family. My family showed me all the time what it looks like when human beings meet and love and walk with God. In the early days of my life, all the way up through most of high school, I, I was immersed in God culture, God organizations, God talk. I grew up in the church. And the truth is, it gets really irritating to grow up in the church and not know the one for whom the church is organized. It's, it was confusing. It was irritating. I felt like I was missing all kinds of other good opportunities because my, my family kept bringing me to this place. I'm like, I don't, I'm not feeling any of this. I don't even know why people get, go to this place. And yet, it wasn't until I would look at my mom and my dad and my brother, that's the only time I started to feel something like, okay, well, I'm still going to give this a chance. I feel like I'm missing something. When I looked around me at some of my other friends and stuff, I would wonder because they all just looked like they were loving me just going, just stop asking questions and just go. I'm like, I can't do that. I'm not as dead up here as you apparently because I see you just go, oh, just go, man. Just don't, don't fight it. I'm like, I can't do that. I need to know what this is. Why do you seem so convinced of anything? And so it would agitate me because I wanted to know, is God real? Is this knowable? And most people I met, they inflame my doubts. But I thank God for certain people in my life, some of my youth pastors, my, my parents, my brother, who stayed the course, and in their eyes, through their eyes, I saw a God who is knowable and was known to them. They saw him, they loved him, they believed in him, and something about that stirred my heart and anchored me in place so that even when I was really confused, when my heart was wavering, and I wasn't sure what to think or feel, I would look at them and say, well, there must be something, because these people I know and trust, they see something I don't. And because they have faith, I'm going to hang on just a little bit longer, because I must be missing something. I'm not going to just write it off. See, my dad is one of the, the greatest human beings I know in this world. I have so much respect, such a high regard for my dad. And when I saw him as a thinking man bow his knees to Jesus on a regular basis, it stirred something powerfully inside of me. That you can know God without turning off your brain. That this man that I revere, that I deeply love and respect, he is convinced of the reality of this Jesus. Before Bearing witness to Jesus is ever an act of persuasion. It is an act of believing and knowing. We can only share with others the Jesus we actually know. And for many people, the start of their journey is through your eyes and your conviction and your confidence. They see that God is, in fact, not a thousand miles away, but he is knowable to the person of Jesus Christ. 
This is why it's, a, it's an important discipline for me not to speak so often about God in the generic, but about Jesus, God who is man. Now, I believe in the triune God. I believe in Father, I believe in Son, and I believe in Holy Spirit. But when I read the New Testament, both God the Father and God the Spirit make very much of the Son. It's not a bias that I have alone, but when you read the weight of the entire New Testament, what it's saying is, don't mistake the fact that the God the Father who always existed from time immemorial, he fills the pages of the Old Testament, and the Spirit of God who shows up again and again in the Old Testament, that is still God and is very important, but it was not until the Son came into the world that people finally began to understand and draw near to God at the intimacy, at the depth that God always wanted. It's absolutely important we make much of the Son of God. And so it's important when we talk about God to speak often of Jesus because Jesus is the God we come to know truly in the depth. And he's the God who makes God who is infinite and invisible appear to us truly knowable. He makes him knowable. I don't know if you are convicted or about to switch religions, or I don't. I can't ever read your faces, but you got to marinate on that one for a little while. That's not a thing you hear and just go, "Okay, good." Next, you got to dwell on that a little bit. So I'm going to invite you to write it down, and when you get a quiet moment, chew it a little. Okay, chew it. Suck the juices down. Just let it flow over you. Let me give you a second thing. Witnesses past, point past religion to Jesus. Look at these verses, verses 16 to 17. Speaking about Jesus, he says, Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. Some translations put that grace upon grace or grace on top of grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. What is that phrase, grace in place of grace already given? What does that mean? That, that was one of those kinds of phrases that I called Bibleese that when I was in youth group, I would read the Bible and I would come to a phrase and go, grace the Bible, grace already received. And I would just move on. I wouldn't even think about it because it confused me. And whenever anything confused me, I just flushed it down the toilet of my brain. And that's too big. And I I ejected it and moved on. But this is a really important little phrase we have to unpack. And verse 17 actually gives us the key to unlock it. Here's what it means. There was an entire way of knowing God that was provided on the foundation of the law given through Moses. Where God revealed very clearly what's important to him, what he expects of us, what he demands of humanity, how he wants creation to be ordered. He gave us all of that in black and white, in writing. It could not have been clearer what was on the mind and heart of God because he gave that to us and it was oppressively high aiming. I mean, it was ridiculously sweeping in its scope. But there you have it. That, that was the foundation of what the Jews built an entire religious system on, is God wants to be known and followed and revered and worshipped in accordance with this law. We today in the church look at religion with a bit of a skeptical eye. In fact, I've even heard things like this said. I've even said things similar in spirit as, religion kills, but Jesus saves. Religion is bad, but the the gospel is wonderful. And there is some ring of truth to that feeling. I get what people are trying to say. That dead religion, devoid of the presence and intimacy of knowing God, is the worst thing you can impose upon a person. Because it's like the, the obligations of a relationship without any of the benefits of the relationship. It's like trying to tell a single person, let me describe the wonder of marriage. You're stuck with one person until the day that they die or you die or you die together. You never get to look at anyone else, think about anyone else. You're going to watch that same face get uglier by the day. That same joke a thousand times. The same cooking, the same everything. 
You have to come home to the same building, share the money with the same person, and honor, and you go, and that's what marriage is all about. I dare you to find one single person who goes, where do I sign up? That just sounds awesome. It sounds way better than what I have right now. It doesn't at all, does it? Because when you frame a relationship only in terms of the requirements and restrictions and forget that the reason you would ever sign up for that is because behind all of that is a person that sets your heart on fire, that fills your being with a depth of love you didn't think was possible in this world. Without that other part of it, the first part sounds like a prison. It sounds more like a curse than a blessing. So what's one of the reasons that religion has gotten a bad name is because many people have pushed religion without presenting the God who stands behind it beautifully, holding out a promise of love, real peace, joy, transformation in our inner being. The law was given through Moses, and it was the foundation of all that we call religion in the time of Jesus. And yet what's astounding is John looks at that and says, but you know what? That law and that religion is nonetheless a grace. It's a gift of mercy and kindness from God that reveals his love to us. How do we understand that? I think we need to be careful how we talk about religion. Religion minus God is deadening, just like marriage minus love is deadening. But religion itself is not the problem. It's the minus God part that's the problem. So we should not talk about religion as though it were an evil to be avoided, because in fact, the truth is religion is the first exposure most people have to God. If it were not for the church, most people would not hear about who God is at all. They would never have food for thought, some seed planted that would bloom later in their life. Here's the truth. I came to Jesus in salvation and trust when I was 16 years old, just going on the cusp of 17. But I did not turn my life over to Jesus until I was 24, some seven, eight years later. It was because there was a seed planted through the church and its ministry that later bloomed when I, as a human being, matured to the point where I could handle it. That's why I think ministry to young people requires so much faith. Because the problem is not just that the seed is corrupted or the soil is corrupted. Sometimes it's just that the bread's not done baking. These are lofty, weighty truths And until you get to a place of maturity as a human being, you can't fully house all of this at the level that it's meant to. I don't think we need to demonize religion to preach the good news of Jesus. Because what John says and what we believe through Scripture is that religion itself was a gift of grace, but now through Jesus, we get something even better It is a new gift of grace on top of the old gift of grace. And maybe if this is putting you to sleep, an analogy will help once again. Because I like to use analogies because I'm not that deep, and analogies actually help me. So let me give you one. I'm not going to have a slide for it, but because if I put a slide up for this, I'd lose you. Okay. One of my favorite parts of going to the movies, how many of you guys know I love going to the movies? Yeah, right. That's the judgiest hand raise I've ever seen. So. <laughs> I love going to the movies. And one of my favorite parts of going to the movies, not just watching movies, but going to the movies, is the previews that run at the beginning of the movie. I feel like when you go to the theater, you get the, the full content of one movie and the excitement and anticipation of five other movies. It's like getting more than your money's worth. And I love previews when they're well done because they spark my interest, they stir up anticipation and a yearning that make me impatient, like, I can't wait to see that. You know how many times I've said those words in a dark room? I can't wait for that to come out. Oh my gosh, it can't come quickly enough. Why did they show the preview so early on? It's not coming out till December of next year. That's just not fair. And why? Because this little thing, and I'm not stupid, I know that a preview is not the actual movie. It's the promise of a movie to come. But the preview does something really important. It 
whets the appetite. It awakens the hunger. It tells me I need more. And so when I see the movie, I don't look at the preview and go, how stupid was that? That short, edited, mini version of this wonderful thing. I'm grateful for the preview because the preview is what got me in the theater in the first place. It's what led me to the place of further investigation, of wanting more, trying to learn more. The preview sets us up and points us to a greater thing that is yet to come. So that in the same way, religion always pointed to a God who is personal. It always pointed to a God who wanted to be known and to know and love his creation. The deadest religions point to a God who doesn't really care about us, but just has standards and otherwise ignores us. That is not the God we follow. The God we follow knows your name. He knows my name. He cares deeply about the journey of our lives. He's waiting on the edge of his seat for that moment in time when our eyes finally open to him and we say, oh, there you are. I've heard you talked about all my life, but I just really met you for the first time. If you're a parent, that's the moment you pray for all the time for all of your children. You yearn for, you anticipate that moment when the God you've been talking about all their lives finally breaks through and your children see him and they go, oh, that's what they've been talking about all this time. Religion always pointed to a God who was personal and real and alive. And when we bear witness, we've got to be careful never to present it as these are the requirements. This is the lifestyle. This is how we live. This is what we must do. If people hear us talk about Christianity and what they walk away with is what well, seems like a lot of reading, a lot of praying, a lot of this, and what they don't walk away with is that's the way that we find our way to a God who is alive and real and intimate, then we've done it wrong. Religion is important because it is the first gift of grace. But the ultimate gift of grace is the person of God who then says everything religion pointed to has a person behind it. And that's the whole point of it all. So when we bear witness, the focus must not be on describing a lifestyle, an ethic, a moral code, a point of view, a political stance, none of that. That's not what's most important. I'm not saying it should be sentimentalism without content. We should be accurate and truthful and biblical. But when we talk about Jesus and when we talk about the gospel, it must always be from the perspective of walking with someone who is real, not just describing the way we walk, but why we walk, who we walk with, and who we walk towards. That's important. I want to say, I know not everyone here in this room is a parent, but if you are a parent... I especially want to talk to you for a minute. Because sometimes the way that we try to lead our children to God is divorced from our own walking with God. They hear us talk about what is necessary, what is important, what is right and wrong. But I think it's so important that they also see us actually walk with, through the means that we're practicing, through our own Bible reading, through our own prayer life, they actually see us draw near to a God who is real and draw in his presence real comfort when we're afraid, real confidence when we're feeling insecure, real courage when we're afraid. Do you see that the, what, what we're trying to describe here? Is that it's not our words alone that lead others. It's the substance of our actual relationship with this God that speaks volumes to those we are leading to him. And that segues us to the last thing. And that is that witnesses share their Jesus story. Luke one thirty six tells us, just in passing, that Jesus' mom and John the Baptist's mom were relatives. We're not sure exactly what kind, but it just says, oh, and Elizabeth, John's mom, was Mary's relative, Right? So from that, a lot of people have inferred that Jesus and John the Baptist were cousins. That may be the case. We're not, you can't be dogmatic about it. But it, if we trust what the Bible says without picking it apart too much, then in faith what we can't accept is there was a blood relation or a marriage relation somewhere between John the Baptist's family and Jesus' family. Now maybe they were cousins. Maybe they grew up together. They saw each other through mashed potatoes at every Thanksgiving dinner. 
Maybe they sat at the same kids' table at every wedding. I don't know if they were intimate or friendly growing up. It could also be that they never met each other until the day that Jesus came to John to be baptized. But here's the, the likeliest scenario is that they did know who the other person was. I think that's the most likely scenario, is that John the Baptist and Jesus, at the very least, knew of each other and understood that there was some relation between us. So that's why it's kind of curious when in John chapter 1, verses 31 to 34, John the Baptist twice says in testifying about Jesus, listen guys, I'm announcing this Jesus who is my relative, but here's the truth. I myself did not know him. I myself did not know him. He says it twice. Why would he say it twice? It's likely not the case that he's saying, I never met this guy. I had no idea he was my relative. Who knew? I think what he's saying is, I knew him, but I didn't really know him. I knew about him. I knew of him. I could recognize him by sight. We had talked on numerous occasions, but all the while, I never really knew who he was. That was my story growing up. I was drowning in Jesus culture, man. I mean, I was swimming in it every week. I was praying for my food for 17 years before I walked with Jesus. I was thanking a God I didn't know for food I was eating. I was just, I was in it all the time. My guilt was framed by a God I didn't know. I felt bad about things without knowing why I felt bad about them other than I was trained to feel bad about them. So I knew about this Jesus. But I didn't really know him until August of 1984. And that's when I first really saw him and then in the same exact moment, I saw myself. It was a really, really powerful day for me. It is what I would call my spiritual birthday. And I've been in the room when all four of my children were birthed. Birth is not a casual event. Can I just tell you that right now? You don't just go, oh yeah, she just gave birth yesterday. No biggie. You're like, oh man, she gave birth. I wanted to buy my wife a Lexus after every delivery. I'm like, I I feel like I got to buy you something really expensive. I can't believe what you just went through. Birth is a profound and significant event. And my spiritual birth was no different. It was messy, man. There was a lot of fluids. I, I was crying and snotting, and I, I just I understood who he was. And then I understood who I was, and I couldn't understand why he would still want to be with me. But somehow it all became so clear in one day. That wasn't the day that I handed my whole life and my heart over to him. That would come nearly eight years later. But that was the day that I met him for the first time. This Jesus that I thought I knew, I actually met. So like John the Baptist, I understand what he's saying. Yeah, I knew him, but boy, I tell you, I myself did not know him until August of 1984. And then I walked him for many years through clumsy, half-hearted, nominal believism, and then at the age of 24, something profound happened to me, and I remember that year very clearly as well, because that was the year that I understood he was not just the one who would bring me to heaven, but the one who had rightful claim over the rest of my life. He really was king, I just had not acknowledged him as king. So when I turned 24, I I remember very profoundly a day where I saw him for the second time in total clarity, and I realized what he wanted from me, and where I would find my future. And that was the the year that I handed my whole being, as much as I was able, over to him, and he changed everything. I wouldn't go as far as to say that was my second birth, but I think the story that we're called to tell is not the story that is historical only, that is theological only, but it's a privilege to share a personal story. The story of unfolding realization that the Jesus I thought I knew, I actually came to know at some point in my life. That's the testimony of our lives. Everyone can preach the same gospel, but everyone also shares a very unique, different Jesus story. 
The gospel, we don't have a lot of latitude over. You can't make up the way that Jesus saves. You can't make up that part. It's set in stone. It's, it's truth recorded in scripture. But the way he saved us, the way he drew us towards him, that's a beautiful, powerful story. And it's one of the things we share when we bear witness. I want to tell you the truth about the historical Jesus. But I also want to tell you my story of how I thought I knew him, but then I really came to know him. Anyone growing up in America will have some passing knowledge about Jesus, some familiarity with at least the name. Most people in America think they know something about Jesus. In fact, if you just, if you took a microphone on the street with a video camera and said, hey, what do you know about Jesus? Most people go, he's a really good man, he's loving, he's really kind, he certainly would be, and then they would probably, in the next sense, use Jesus to support their political platform, because that's just where America is right now. I know that's exactly what happened, Okay. <laughs> two people with completely different worldviews would still use the same Jesus to support it. I get that. But what they would say in general about him is, he's a really nice dude, man. Like, Jesus is love. It's, we should be more like him. That's a general cultural knowledge of Jesus. And here's the thing. I think a lot of people in churches across America, that's about as far as their knowledge of Jesus really goes. We know a lot about him. But something powerful happens when we hear one another's Jesus story. And we say, we, we say to ourselves, hmm, I don't know if I've had a journey that resembles the thing you just described to me. What you just told me is that there is a knowing, and then there's another layer of knowing, and yet another layer of knowing. And I think I've parked here for a really long time. I thought I'd gotten there. And your story awakened something in me. It led me to ask more questions, to expect or search for a little bit more. Normally, when we, when we talk about evangelism, here's what I think irritated me about so much evangelism training that I sat under in my Christian life, okay, is that they would immediately jump to the taxi driver, <laughs> today would be the Uber driver, with whom I literally share 15 minutes of my life. And I felt so much pressure, like, how am I supposed to tell someone in 15 minutes who's driving a car about the Savior of the world? It's a lot of pressure. Or they would say, talk to the kid who sits next to you every day in class or to the person in the next cubicle over. I want to give you a different picture. Start with the people right in front of you. Start with the people you already know. Learn how to bear witness to Jesus with the people who already get you and know you. And let me ask you a question. The people that are closest to you, do they know your Jesus story? I've been, I've been thinking about that because I realize I'm not sure. My children have heard me preach for years now, so they've heard everything you've heard from the pulpit. But I'm wondering if they could stand in front of someone else and share their dad's Jesus story. Just from heart, from memory. Because it's the most valuable story I have. If I, if I had to tell you a story that describes who I am, that is my story. It's the most important, vital part of my whole story. You take that story away, I'm just some other short, middle-aged, out-of-shape Asian dude. That's all I am. You take away Jesus, I am, what am I? This is it. This is what you see. It's, this is what I am. Minus Jesus, I don't believe I have any real significance. Now, the world keeps telling me, yes, I do, I'm awesome, I'm great. Yeah, okay, but I'm about as great as you and everybody else on the earth, okay? I have the same value, the same worth, the same essence, all of it. But what makes me extraordinary? It's my story of Jesus. You take away that, and my story is not worth hearing. Why would you want to sit and listen? And I've been wrestling through, do the people closest to me really know my story of Jesus? This unfolding journey that I've had in my life of discovering who Jesus is. If you're in a relationship with someone, they probably know a lot about you. In fact, they could probably finish all your jokes and all your sentences. They've probably rolled their eyes so often Right? This is my comment saying, they roll their eyes so far back they see their own brains. But do they really know your Jesus story? 
And maybe your Jesus story is just beginning, but do they know it? It's one of the most precious things we have to share with other human beings. And I want to just say one more word to to parents because I'm saying this as much to myself. We've got to stop barking lectures at our kids and really begin to share with them why we live the way we do, why we tell them what we tell them. And it's got to be rooted in our own story of coming to Jesus. It is a gift we have to regularly... I'm not saying we should not discipline, correct our kids. Man, do they also know your story of Jesus? Do they understand that that, more than anything else, informs and drives everything you stand for and everything that you are? To bear witness is not to tell people about a process by which you can change religions or go from hell to heaven. Ultimately, it is a story of coming to know at a personal level the God who has always stood before his creation and said, know me, love me, walk with me, come alive in me. That's what the gospel is. And I challenge each of you, as scripture does, to embrace this calling to be a witness and begin with the people that you already care about and share life with. Think about the extent to which you share with them the substance of your own knowing of Jesus. Lead them to a relationship that is real for you. That's the privilege we have. You don't have to be an expert on everything, but the one thing you have to give away is your own story of coming to know Jesus. Can I encourage you to think about the people right around you who need to hear that story more often. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.